So it is my pleasure to introduce to you Kirk Bresnicker, uh, who is fellow of Hewlett Packard Enterprise uh, and the VP. Uh, Kirk, I know you have uh, many other roles, so perhaps you can introduce yourself in in a, in a broadest sense. Uh, thanks, Dan, and thanks for inviting me on to uh, to talk. Um, I am uh, Kirk Bresnicker. Uh, in addition to the uh, the, the titles, uh, my role here at Hewlett Packard Labs in, in Palo Alto, California, is uh, uh, that of chief architect. So I get to look over the advanced development programs that we've been driving over the labs for several years. Um, I came uh, from our business units. I spent about 25 years uh, designing computing platforms uh, inside of Hewlett Packard and then Hewlett Packard Enterprise. And I came to the labs uh, about uh, five years ago now. Uh, to drive advanced development, to sit in that sort of uncomfortable middle space uh, between uh, the evolutionary work that is done in the business units, the kind of big D, little r, uh, and the big R, uh, little d uh, research, the uh, both the applied and the basic research that was done in labs, trying to pull together all of the capabilities of Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Our labs research team, our engineering teams in our business units, our services teams that know how to deploy platforms globally, our manufacturing and supply chain teams, trying to pull every together into that, that middle space, you know, beyond the conventional evolutionary roadmaps of a business unit, uh, nearer in uh, and more practical uh, in demonstrating uh, working results than we would see from the, uh, the uh, either the basic or even the applied research teams, sort of sitting that ground, what should we be showing is possible in the next three to five years? What do we need to tell our uh, partners, our silicon partners, our open source development partners, our software partners, our business and development partners. What should we be showing them that is that is definitely possible? Um, still needs a lot of work, still needs um, some uh, polish and refinement, but what is really possible in the next three to five years? That's what I, I get to do, and it's a fantastic job here at Hewlett Packard Labs. Thanks, Kirk. So if we um, look from the customer's perspective, uh, what are their most dire needs? I know we have tons of cool technologies, but what do our customers uh, have to say? What, what do they tell you when you meet them? Um, so there, there's two two important goals, and I, and I get to you know meet with customers just about every week, whether it's in our, our briefing centers uh, in Palo Alto or uh, New York or London, um, or it's actually going out on the road um, and visiting with our teams, uh, our field teams, uh, and our customers and partners around the world. And they have this two in very challenging goals. One, they always have to be more efficient. So everything that information technology has always done, um, they have to do uh, for less money uh, and for greater uh, agility and impact every single year. Um, so that's always, always on their mind. But they also realize that we're in this fascinating crossover point, um, the potential for a new role for uh, information technology, not just to make conventional business more efficient, uh, but actually to be a business unto itself. Um, there's this realization that data is this incredible resource, this, this natural vital force of competitiveness. And, and this is true whether you are a, an enterprise, a global enterprise, a small uh, local enterprise, or even if you're a public uh, institution, uh, academic or government or public sector. You want to be more effective. You, you feel like you have this great potential. 
because you have access to information, access to raw data, but you have to know how to refine it, and that's what they're all wondering. And right now, the other thing that's popping up on all of their minds is that the technologies that have been so effective uh, at delivering year-over-year -year improvement in information technology uh, that that whole cadre of technologies may be coming to you know the sort of the terminal efficiency. Uh, you know, it's not just Moore's law. Uh, slowing down. Uh, it's so many of the basic technologies that we have used for such great effect in improving year-over-year -year performance, reducing cost and increasing performance for information technology. And new technologies are emerging, whether that's uh, quantum computing, photonic, neuromorphic computing, new physics. Physics, you know, instead of being dominated by one physics, semiconductor scaling, new physics is emerging. Or it's also new kinds of applications and the entire breadth of, uh, of artificial intelligence here. And we're talking about more than just um, machine learning uh, or um, neural networks. New uh, approaches to transforming information and gaining insight, that means that they everything that got them to their position so far, that have made them successful so far, isn't guaranteed uh, to be uh, what is going to be necessary in the future. So this is the simultaneous trying to make yesterday's technology as efficient as possible while understanding when is there that breakthrough, when is there that cutover point that we need to be placing some new bets. Um, and you know, the, I think that the customers fall on a spectrum. Some of them are concerned about you know, trying to make those bets. Others are really uh, you know, looking forward to a changing role to change when information technology stops being a cost center. The only thing that they normally have a conversation with their leadership team is how they're reducing costs and increasing performance. Uh, and now they're talking about contributing, contributing both revenue and profit to a business because of information technology. So it's a really fascinating time. And uh, the uh, people we get to meet with are alternately you know, very concerned and very excited. Uh, because they realize that this is an interesting crossover point um, that has probably not really happened in about the last 40 years. Uh, is that so? But it's uh, it's always an interesting time uh, when uh, things are crossing over like this. And uh, if you are bold, uh, then it's very exciting. Is there any vertical where this is especially expressed? Where um, uh, you know you can say that it goes furthest. Um, one of the ones that, that's been really fascinating for me, uh, and I've really spent about the last year um, at the direction of our, the technical committee of our board of directors, looking at is is mobility. And this is, you know, it's more than it's what we might have called in the past transportation or automotive, or but let's talk about it as as a larger uh, as a larger group here. And this is uh, in, intelligent uh, mobile mobility systems. Um, this is. Fascinating to me because it, it one has this um, you know this global reach. Everyone needs a mobility solution. Everyone needs that combination of personal vehicles, public transportation, uh, short trips, long trips, all of those things. That the daily problem of getting you where you need to be uh, safely, cost-effectively, and increasingly uh, important uh, in a sustainable energy profile. Um, that is sort of what is all being tackled. We have. 100, 200, you know, 100 year old companies that are competing with, you know, Silicon Valley startups. So there's that fascinating uh, uh, group of individuals who are competing for it. But for me, it's, it's interesting because it, it has a manufacturing component, it has an 
a research and development component. It has an engineering component. It has a delivery component. It has both a public and private sector component. Um, and it ends up affecting having a huge economic uh, component. Uh, there's one of, those, one of those basic things. If you want to raise people's individual economic outcomes, um, you give them a mobility solution uh, that is, works for them and is sustainable and affordable. Um, that's just one of those basic economic enablers to uh, individuals achieving um, their personal uh, goals economically. And then that then cascades from the individual to the local community, to the, the regional community, to the national community, and, and to the global community. So it's an incredible opportunity here. And what's interesting from the technology point is we're at this this intersection of three interesting forces. One is the switch over in basic energy economy from internal combustion, from carbon-based uh, uh, engine technologies to electric vehicles uh, and to that distributed um, electric uh, dis um, uh, motive platform. The second one is the rise of connected and autonomous. And there's, there's an interesting spectrum in there. Uh, and we don't have to necessarily get all the way to fully autonomous vehicles for this to be uh, a major impact. But they're, they're connected. They're an interesting uh, vehicle platform. And the last is the rise of uh, and rising percentage of uh, those of us who live globally in urban environments, in urban environments where we can invest in the intelligent social infrastructure surrounding the mobility system. And that's both to enable a more robust, more safe, uh, and more effective mobility solution, but it's also that it is an, another partner into the mobility solution. Uh, when you sort of look at the intersection of all of those things, electrification, uh, connectedness and autonomy in an urban environment, um, the vehicle itself becomes a really fascinating collection of all of the innovations that we want to see. Um, and that goes all the way back to, to the back to the engineering team that's designing the vehicles, designing the energy systems for the vehicles, battery technology, lightweight, strong materials, taking high performance computing. Um, the design of uh, sustainable energy to flow into, and then understanding how that would be distributed. And it's not necessarily um, design of a completely centralized system, but suddenly microgrids uh, pop up, uh, distributed and sustainable energy uh, 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 generation and distribution is and so that's there's there's all those interesting things there's how we manufacture these vehicles and and automotive uh, and mobile solutions is of course it's a traditional um, it has traditionally been one of those catalysts for change. Uh, if you think all the way back to the creation of the assembly line, to the creation of just-in-time just supply chains, so much of, of those have had as their catalyst generating mobility solutions. So it's a traditionally been a very strong um, a strong force for, for innovation. So we think about you know that going into the factory and producing these things. And now producing them not just in traditional methodologies, but producing them with very agile, um, uh, fluid, changeable factories that are constantly adapting. And that every manufacturing process, every manufactured item, every element in that supply chain instrumented up generating data and continuously refined to take action to improve quality, reliability, safety, um, and also business intelligence flowing off of it. But then we think of those vehicles then deployed in this in this uh, urban environment where they're interacting with each other, interacting uh, with the city, with the municipality, generating large amounts of data. Um, and what's really fascinating to me is I think of that vehicle, I think of that 
intelligent connected vehicle and what's really interesting is that if you think what's uh, what's inside of that it's got power it has a very large battery that can be used not just for mode of transport but transport of energy itself it's got uh, a very interesting computational platform it's got a fascinating sensor platform including lots and lots of um, of video uh, camera information all coordinated with GPS you know down to the meter down to the microsecond uh, to um, triangulate collection of uh, vast amounts of information uh, for the public good inside of that inside of that municipality um, and it's got communications it's connected into uh, today uh, 3g 4g but tomorrow 5g and, and advanced wireless connectivity connections and it's it's motive it can actually go in the city where we want so uh, thinking about that that fluid intelligence inside of tomorrow's smart city whether it is a brand new city uh, built in an emerging region built up uh, from the ground up in an intelligent urban environment or is um, a smart intelligent mobile solution um, put into an old city, put into an old world city, where it is a way in which we can retrofit uh, capabilities of, of uh, intelligent social infrastructure without having to tear up uh, and retrofit in, in an old environment. So all those things coming together, whether we're talking about what's in the enterprise that runs the business, what's in the factory that produces the fleet, what is in the municipality that uh, that uses the fleet to accomplish mobility goals for its customer, what is in the fleet itself, uh, communicating between the vehicles, communicating to the power and maintenance infrastructure, to the terminals where all those smart vehicles dock at the end of their shift and are capable of pulling on power, dropping off power, uh, or large amounts of intelligent coordinated information, or what's inside of that vehicle itself, uh, not just the uh, not just the navigation function, the autonomous function, but also the sensor fusion platform and the uh, the uh, the productivity uh, or entertainment of its passengers. So, incredible end to end from from ev from uh, multiple edges, many many clouds, all the way back through multiple enterprises, both public and private. Uh, that mobility solution is is a fascinating example of that next generation of intelligent uh, social infrastructure uh, that is going to really be enabled by the big leaps uh, that we want to be able to accomplish in information technology. So Kirk, where do you think that industry can help, um, for example, in this specific use case of, of mobility, uh, the, the public and um, and our customers uh, in general. What are some breakthrough innovations that can dramatically improve this use case? Uh, there's uh, inside of the vehicles. There's the challenge uh, of space, weight, and power. Uh, my, my dad was an aerospace engineer, and they would always talk about SWAP, space, weight, and power. Because whether you're, you know, when you're up in the satellite, uh, you know, every gram, every cubic centimeter, uh, and every um, uh, every watt of dissipation is uh, really critical. And that's the same thing inside of all these edge uh, applications inside of the vehicle. Space, weight, and power is crucial. But what's also changing now is the kinds of applications that we want to run out there. It's not just a traditional uh, control or embedded application. It is uh, an intense sensor fusion platform hooked up to uh, machine learning inference. Uh, and so we need to understand 
how do we reduce the space weight and power uh, that can handle an extremely robust and constantly improving uh, machine learning uh, and artificial intelligence-based solution that we want to embed into uh, every aspect of those vehicles. So, uh, working on the uh, energy, uh, the energy um, uh, and space weight and power of an intelligent solution. There's also that you know, one of the most fascinating things I think about these connected vehicles is as an engineer, as a person designing these systems, uh, this puts me in a, in a fascinating and different potential solution that so much of the content is intelligence delivered as uh, as machine learning and other software loads onto the base platform. I'm actually able to continuously improve my product designs after they leave the factory. Um, in a sense, they're never done being improved, uh, and they have that connectedness. So rather than rely on the occasional report and or if there's problems and I have to go out and hunt the information, I'm intimately connected with every single one of the of the instances of my design that have been produced, and that that is a, a that is a long-term relationship. I can continually improve them; they continuously provide us with more information for that virtuous cycle of improvement. So I think how we work out how that data flow uh, happens from every single system uh, device, manufacturer device out at the edge, how it is operating, how it is finding anomalies um, in, its, uh, in its operation, how it's sending those back, flowing all the way back from the individual car, the car as a member of a fleet, the fleet as a member of, um, of a service, those services as they flow back how all those things are working. So I think the other piece of this that the industry can provide uh, is that combination of working across communications, power, uh, um, and, uh, and manufacturing and distribution of these fleets, how we get and uh, connect all that from every, every one of those edge devices all the way back to the factory in a safe and secure manner that respects the privacy uh, and the, um, the individual rights of every individual that is helping generate all of that data flow, but then also allows us to take advantage of it. So I think there is an element there of understanding how we securely admit all of that data, how we can securely allow um, content to flow, continuously flow, improvements uh, and uh, and quality and safety improvements flow out to all those devices. And that uh, is going to be a challenge, but it's also, I think, that model, uh, that model of fully connected, uh, constantly improving manufacturing, manufactured items that have that uh, that um, capability of, of continuous, continuous integration, continuous delivery into every physical uh, manufactured item. So that, I think, going out, but that connection in both directions, data flowing in, improvements flowing out, uh, and just going back and forth, back and forth. I think that's another piece that needs to be worked out uh, among industry, um, because we want to have that, but we also don't want to open up um, security challenges. We all know, we, we read every day, um, the emergence of, of, of deep embedded devices uh, that are only intermittently, if ever, updated, um, that are pose incredible uh, potential security uh, challenges to uh, to the consumers, both privacy and safety issues. Uh, and we need to figure out how do we how do we attack all of that? You know, it can be formal methods uh, proving that software is safe and correct. Technologies that techniques have been applied in, in aerospace in the past. How can we afford to apply those? 
uh, on industrial scale across consumer uh, consumer goods. Uh, it is secure supply chains. It is secure communications. Improvement in cryptographic uh, signing and delivery of updates, of ways in which we can have trusted systems. So I think that's another piece uh, that is an interesting intersection of both in industry, uh, enterprise, and also academic researchers. We're working together to d demonstrate, you know, being able to mathematically show and prove that systems are safe. Are there any other examples where industry, which is amazing in uh, incrementally improving space, weight, power, and many other dimensions, but when it hits the wall and then we really need to reach out to academia for completely out-of-box thinking, some completely new paradigms, are there some other examples where we need completely to redesign everything? Um, I think that if we look in um, in biotech uh, and realizing realizing the potential uh, of of all the information that we're getting, um, I think that's another example. So much of this data is uh, has, is is personalized, and and that is what we we aspire to. We aspire to to being able to afford individualized, personalized medical care for every one of us. Eight eight billion and counting uh, individuals, and that's an incredible information management challenge, but it's also uh, a privacy and security challenge as well. So I think that's an example. Um, you know, I I was having a conversation with a. Uh, with a uh, bioinformatics company, and and they were in a fascinating uh, challenge in that um, they had the capability, they had figured out how to take your individual uh, genome and the mutation on one of your uh, sequences and realize with molecular kinematics, you know, what is the actual outcome? So not just uh, the correlation of your A's, T's, and C's, and G's with some, some health count, uh, outcome measured uh, as uh, as some uh, secondary effect, but what does it actually do? You know, when you switch out one amino acid for another at a certain spot in a protein, what does that actually happen? Uh, to the uh, to the uh, actual three-dimensional uh, dynamic behavior of that uh, realized protein. Uh, and the challenge they had is that they were spending a day or two um, in uh, in creating data out of the, every month, and then they spent the balance, you know, uh, 28 days out of 30, they were spending, you know, reducing the day and reducing it by hand. Um, yeah, having to shepherd this information processing, uh, we began to explore with them, uh, you know, taking on new architectural principles, um, which was tough for them because they were a startup. You know, there were six individuals uh, with fantastic understanding of that intersection of biology and chemistry, uh, and uh, beginning that computation. Of course, what did they do? They went to the cloud, and they got great GPUs on the cloud. But the volume of data that they were having to manage and go through. They just couldn't. They couldn't progress, um, and so they could demonstrate. It, the, today's conventional technology gave them the ability to demonstrate the future was was there, but it wasn't there to realize it. Uh, we worked with them in in a couple of months on some novel hardware platforms, and it got to that breakthrough. It got them to run things hundreds of times faster, much less energy. But the other important thing that it allowed them to do was essentially to industrialize the process, and in that rather than have an, a skilled technician constantly adjusting and nudging uh, the analytics, they could just 
put it in and, and uh, put it in the uh, system, and it would just crunch it. And that's important because if we want to have solutions that are scalable uh, to everyone, so that we can afford that kind of personalized medicine to everyone, it has to be an industrialized process. It can't be something that's that's shepherded by a couple of key uh, key individuals. We need something that we can scale. We can scale, and then we continue to cost reduce. Uh, so I think that is for me was a was a fantastic example of applying novel uh, computational uh, approaches to a problem and getting through that breakthrough. Not just, not just you know, realizing that there's the possibility, uh, but actually showing, showing the, giving them a roadmap, giving them a roadmap of continuous improvement of an industrialized process that then is something that they can afford to offer to everyone. This was a great example, thanks. Uh, connecting biotechnology with uh, current uh, verticals is, is it was really insightful so we have so far covered customers uh, we covered where industry can help where academia can help can you speak a little bit about the role of governments how can they help advance uh, for example in this mobility vertical you can pick yep. up any other that you prefer yeah, I think it's it's a fascinating time right now where uh, we've been having discussions uh, around high performance and scientific compute. Uh, you know, we we have been working uh, at Hewlett Packard Labs and across uh, HPE on exascale. You know, billion, a billion billion floating point operations per second. Um, and it's interesting because it's not really the it's not really the flops, uh, the actual calculations that are the most challenging piece of that. Um, it's easy to get a lot of floating point performance. What's very hard is to get the data flows through that system, uh, especially in energy that we can afford. Uh, so I think that's you know that's one thing that when I think of it though that when we get to that point, uh, when we're sort of on the edge of that right now, um, the question for governments is one of what are they providing uh, to their to their uh, technical, to their academic, to their artistic, to their engineering communities as far as a resource. Um, What's fascinating about this level of high-performance computing is that it ends up changing the behavior of the researchers. Uh, we've been working for some time with uh, DZNE, the German National Center for Neurodegenerative Disease Research. Um, we were working on uh, advancing a, a critical uh, genomic sequencing application. And uh, we were able to get it to run, instead of 25 minutes, to run in 13 seconds, um, and also use 60% less power. Um, which has been a tremendous outcome just because you look at the numbers and, and when something runs 100 times faster, that's pretty impactful. But what was even more amazing is, is that it changed the behavior of the researchers. Um, it changed them because they were able to operate and ask their questions in real time, uh, to sit side by side with a huge uh, pool of genomic sequences and ask them every question that they wanted to and while they were still thinking of it, while they were still forming their hypothesis, to ask the next question and the next one. It turns them into hunters. Um, and I think that's one of the interesting questions for for, um, for governments right now, what are we doing to make sure that as this kind of switch over, um, this, whether it is a digital twin of a biological system, a physical system, or even an economic system, when running the simulation uh, becomes the way that the scientist or the engineer or the artist becomes very intimate with their subject matter, um, becomes the way that they, they view uh, their discipline, 
uh, you will either be providing that level of technology and capability to your scientific, engineering, and artistic community, or you or they will be wondering where else they can get it, because it will be a changeover. When you hit one of these changeover points, when they view their discipline differently, um, that is really uh, a cutover point. And in order to be competitive, to really provide your uh, communities with the tools that are at the edge of how science is being done. I think that's an interesting cutover point. So I think as a capability, uh, providing that level of, of technology uh, is going to be a, a responsibility for governments that want to make sure that their, whether it's their local uh, area, uh, whether it is their nation or their region, is competitive, is really advancing uh, and giving every possible opportunity to their citizens, then that's one of those things they'll be wanting to understand. I think moving away from just that that aspect, there is the, the question of, of sustainable infrastructure, uh, sustainable intelligent infrastructure, and, and how much of that can be used to improve the, uh, improve the uh, outcomes for every individual in, in an economy. I Again, for me, there is no there is no aspect uh, of of human uh, governance I think that cannot be uh, uh, improved with the applications of these kinds of of deep learning technologies, artificial intelligence technologies. Uh, we also have to you know decide as a community how we want to do it. But but for me, it's that the breakthroughs in efficiency are possible. And part of what the governments need to have is to bring together all of those stakeholders so that they can agree in accordance with their with their shared values and the the shared outcomes they want to achieve how they want to embrace these technologies uh, and define uh, a, a technology that really affirms um, their shared uh, human values and I think that's an important part of of the government agencies uh, and the government overall to to bring together stakeholders from society, from technology, uh, from public and private um, groups to to have those interesting conversations and decide as a group how they want these technologies to advance. I happen to know that you have been very active in IEEE, specifically in International Roadmap on Devices and Systems. If we look back at this automotive uh, use case, what could be the role of professional organizations such as IEEE and then there are others as well? Uh, I think there, there's, there's definitely um, a lot to be uh, got from uh, participation. Uh, if, you know, one of the things that I've been driving is, um, in addition to the, the, the resources and, and communities you've talked about, IEEE, the Industrial Advisory Board, the International Roadmap for Devices and Systems, also been participating quite a bit at the World Economic Forum uh, and some of their Global Futures Councils. And part of what I've been doing is to try and cross-pollinate between those communities. Um, is they don't always they don't always know about each other, and I think that's one of the most powerful things. When you think of you think of something like the I, uh, the I, IRDS and the ITRS before it, um, you know they were able to accomplish quite a bit uh, as a global community, uh, informing both academia and government about the investments that were necessary to realize a technology goal. Uh, and I think that is increasingly important as, uh, as a cross-pollination because, again, I don't think that there is um, an area where we need to have advancements in, um, in the state of, of human societal outcomes that isn't going to be dependent on information technology. So when I was at the Global Futures Council 
kickoff in Dubai a couple months ago, and we were in the global futures computing uh, community. I mean, it didn't matter who I looked at, whether it was healthcare, equitable access to financial markets, um, water and food safety and security. I knew I could walk into any one of those councils and have and have an important conversation about what did, what were the technology outcomes that we thought we could provide and how those could affect positively the goals of all of those uh, communities that are continuously striving to improve our, our shared outcomes. Um, so I think that's an important thing for us to have as a community is conversations that cross boundaries um, to talk about not only what we can accomplish as engineers, as scientists, as researchers, as academics, uh, and in, as industrial uh, practitioners, but for us to have those conversations so that everyone is aware. You know, we can be advocates uh, on behalf of our technical technical capabilities um, and also you know we have to be listeners as well listen to what are the opportunities and also what are the concerns uh, what are the challenges to adoption uh, that uh, we see so that we can have that conversation uh, and make sure that everyone um, is fully apprised of the true potential the the real um, the real impact uh, both positive and negative of applying technologies uh, I think that's an important element that uh, professional society Societies like the IEEE can provide that broad understanding, that access to uh, hundreds of thousands of professionals, really across across the world, um, and that span, you know, every every uh, community in the world, that, that global presence, uh, bringing perspective, understanding, uh, local and global, to uh, a conversation about things like how to apply artificial intelligence in intelligent social systems, uh, what are the energy uh, information uh, and societal ramifications of applying that, how can we look to these technologies to maximize their benefit uh, and really take stock, long-term stock of, of their impacts in applying them. Many thanks, Kirk. Uh, there are few people in the world who can take these uh, broad perspectives uh, and take uh, customers' view, industry view, academic view, government, and even professional organizations. I really enjoyed uh, this interaction, and I'm looking forward to hosting you again. I'm sure that our audience will enjoy as much as I did. Uh, thank you, Dehan. I really appreciate the chance to talk about this today.